continue on the topic of chesed, and I want to maybe try moving to some some practical elements of chesed, which we grapple with a little bit, and see where examples are which, which can play out uh, even in the life of the average yeshiva bocher. Uh, but I'm going to start with two um, a Gemara and uh, and a story. So the Gemara says that. Um, Novi, the Novi Micho came and he distilled all of Torah into three things. A person does Mishpat, he loves Chesed, and he's Atzneyaleches, Imalakecha, those three things together will basically give the person the framework to make Kaim Kola Torah Kula. So the Gemara, on that, the Gemara says, is referring to the mitzvah of Hagnosis Kala and the mitzvah of Levoyes Ames. So, what does the mitzvah Tsnias have to do, Vatsneyaleches, have to do with the union of Hagnosis Kala and Levoyes Ames? Okay. Um, it's interesting to note that the, the word Tsnias. Which is only found twice in Lev Tanach. It's found in this pasuk Vatznei Aleches Imalakecha. It's also found in the pasuk in Mishlei, where there the pasuk says Es Es Tznuim Chachma. With Tznuim there is wisdom. For those who are Tznuah there is wisdom, and that the guide says, because Tznuah is a person who is interested in hearing what other people have to say, as opposed to sharing his own thoughts. He's not talking; he's listening. And he says, in general, we find that talking is much more about me, me having information and de- and departing it to others, imparting it to others, not departing, imparting it to others. Whereas I'm not learning anything new when I'm talking. When I'm listening, I'm learning something new. So a Sanua who's willing to keep his mouth shut and listen to other people learns things. But a person who's talking always doesn't learn anything new because he's busy, always busy talking. So the Tznua has Chachma because of, he's able to absorb that. That's an interesting point and that's, that will help us understand this Gemara as well. Okay, that's the Gemara. Let's hold the Gemara and let's say a story. So this story is not, a, not necessarily a Jewish story. This story I, I once saw in a, um, one of Del Carnegie's books. I forgot which one. I think it's called Stop, How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. Um, so Dale Carnegie was was a very fascinating individual. Uh, was well known for his How to Win Friends and Influence People, which one of the Rabbi Dimitri used to recommend people to read it. There's a lot of Chachma there. But one of the other, the other Dabi Bali Musser said, that's true, but what's sad about it is that this person really teaches you how to understand other people's needs. And instead of talking about using that as a way to take care of them and help them, he focuses on a way that I should get something out of it, how to win friends and influence people. So I'm going to teach you how to understand what people's needs are and how you could help them, and therefore they're going to like you so much, they're going to be your friends. So then the day it's all about you. So you took this tremendous chokhmah of understanding people's needs and turned it around about yourself. So that's pretty sad. Anyway, in one of the books, I forgot which one, he says the following story. So there was a group of scientists who were going for research to Antarctica. 
Now, Antarctica, the access to Antarctica is limited, so the the ability to get there was only. Uh, now they have there's an airstrip, but in those days there was no airstrip. The access was through boats. Well, the port, which allows the, the boats to the people to embark and disembark, was closed by ice the vast majority of the year. Only it was only open two or three months a year. So any expedition of scientists which would go to Antarctica for research purposes would only would come and they would basically stay there till the boats was available to take them back, which would be nine, nine ten months later. Number one. Number two, living above ground in Antarctica is impossible. The the weather is, is, is so brutal that there's nothing that you can build which really would withstand the weather. So all of the all of the uh, research is taking place. The facilities are built underground. So underground, the, the temperature is much easier to monitor and control. And occasionally they would go they would go up to the surface for the purposes of doing expeditions of various different. So a person not there as a for the purpose of trying to get to the South Pole, etc. They're there to do research about the different types of information which exists in. Um, in the in the area of the Arctic, etc., or the Antarctic. Okay, this fellow comes and he is a his field is nutrition, and part of the research he's going to be doing is the impact of extreme weather on the person's digestive system. So he travels with a group. There's a group of about 50, 50 scientists, and they come. And they're going to be there in these facilities for nine or ten months. He's a nutritionist, and he's also a scientist. So, uh, you know, he does what he thinks is right, right and best for, for his, uh, his, his health. And he decided that the best way to eat food is before you swallow is to chew each morsel of food 50 times. Because that way the saliva actually mixes with, mixes with the food. The saliva has some enzymes in it already. It starts the process of breaking down the food, so when it gets to the stomach, it's ready in the process, and therefore it's digested better. The body's able to get more nutrients out of the food. They have limited food, and to best take advantage of the food which is there, he's going to chew every single morsel that he eats 50 times. So we'll call him scientist number one. Scientist number two was not a nutritionist, and that's not his uh, observations about life, but he's there for a different purpose. And he's seated across the, seat, the table from scientist number one. So they come to the first morning to breakfast and they sit down. And scientist number one chews every single bite that he swallows 50 times. And that annoys scientist number two slightly because every single bite that he puts in his mouth, he chews and he chews and he chews and he chews. Finally, he swallows it. Then he takes another bite and he chews and he chews and he chews. And finally, he swallows it. And it annoys him a little bit, but you know, like, you know, like, Really, it shouldn't really bother him. What's the difference Why? how this food, fellow eats his food? So he doesn't want to say anything like, you know, you stop chewing so much because it's not really his business. So he's embarrassed to look like such a petty person who um, is stuck on how many times you chew your food. So he doesn't say anything. Okay, they come to lunchtime, and obviously to move, move elsewhere again looks very petty, very petty, and it's beneath his dignity to look like he's such a petty person. So he comes at lunchtime, and again, scientist number one is chewing every single morsel of food 50 times. And scientist number two is annoyed by it. And by supper, again, and by breakfast, and by lunch, and by supper, month after month. And scientist number two is getting more and more 
and more upset. And the person writes, this is a true story, the person writes, at the end of the 10, year, ten months, it took every ounce of self-control not to reach across the table and murder scientist number one. It bothered him so much, by the time the, nine, the 10 months were over, he wanted to, to kill him. He wanted to reach across and throttle him and squeeze the life out of scientist number one, because scientist number one chewed food too many times. Now, the story sounds absolutely ridiculous, but if we're willing to be honest, we all have situations like that. So my, 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 the guy across me chews too loudly. The guy brushes his teeth strange. He burps too loud. He makes too many noises when he's, when he's learning. There's all these things which, get, which bother us. And they seem to be petty. Because, like, really, like, what's the difference to you how the guy wears his tie? And the, whether he ties, he un, leaves his shoe untied or not. Right? But strangely enough, these things bother us. But we're embarrassed to say it. So now what? What should we do? Why is it that we are, it bothers us? Why, why are we embarrassed to say it? And what should we actually do? I, I usually say this story in context when I'm learning with Hassanin, right? Um, and I usually, usually go together with another story about a couple which comes to the Rav and they want to get divorced. And uh, the Rav says, obviously, you know, we would like to reconcile before we get, go all the way to the extreme uh, issue of, of getting a get. Can you tell me what the issues are? We can see if we can come to reconciliation. He says, Rabbi, there's nothing to talk about. It's not an option. There's nothing to talk about. This marriage has to end. I can't do it anymore. He says, okay, well, at least tell me what the problem is. Why is it so bad? He says, Rabbi, what, what can I tell you? I, I am a roller, and she is a squeezer. So the Rav looks very straight, very taken aback. He says, what's a roller and what's a squeezer? Like, what are you talking about? He says, you know, there's two ways to use a tube of toothpaste. You can grow, roll it up very nicely and neatly. And each time you take a little bit out, you roll it up, and the tube looks very nice and neat. Or you could squeeze it, and it comes out like all a mess. And I'm a roller, and she's a squeezer, and I, we can't live anymore together. Right? Now, the story is absolutely, the, the, the reason why it's a joke is because that's ridiculous. The problem is some of the things which, I've had couples come to me to complain about. Sound very similar from an objective point of view. I had a husband complain to me that his wife benches too loudly. I said, what's wrong with the fact that your wife benches loudly? Well, she comes to us very, very frum. I said, okay. You're pretty frum yourself. He says, yeah, but when we go out to eat, people think she's like really for frums. Okay. You're like, so that's that. I mean, he wasn't wasn't asking for a get, but he was saying it bothered him to the point that he needed counseling how to deal with it. Not a counselor, you know, I'm not, I'm not a counselor, but he wanted it bothered him to the point he couldn't he couldn't deal with it. So human beings are petty; little things get on our nerves. There's a concept in Allah called vatronus, to be vater. Vita doesn't mean to ignore something which is bothering you. Because if you ignore it, it doesn't go away. A person has a very, very, very light, faint scratch on his, on his hand. Okay, you can ignore it. 
Imagine you scratch at that same level of that same level of lightness a second time, and a third time, and a tenth time, and a fiftieth time. That light little scratch, which is almost imperceptible, becomes an open, festering wound because it's been rubbed so many times. So in a situation of a couple, there's something which bothers one, one of the parties, and it's something which is minimal. The person has two choices. He can say, you know what? I can either move on and decide that it really doesn't bother you and make a decision that it really doesn't bother me. Not that I'm saying it doesn't bother me, not that I'm wishing it doesn't bother me, but it actually does not bother me. I put it in the context of a bigger picture and say this is really not important. Or I can ask him to stop. But to ignore it while it bothers you, it just gets worse and worse and worse. So one day, the husband keeps the wife and says, I hate the way you squeeze your toothpaste. She looks at him like he's from Mars. You're yelling at me because how I squeeze toothpaste? Like, really? Now, if you take that conversation and you move it to the Bukhram and Yeshiva, who happen to be living on, on, underneath in Antarctica together for 10 months, right? And they tend to get on each other's nerves sometimes. And we said, we're not so different. There's things which really bother us. Now, I hope nobody Baruch Hashem is holding in a situation that they, they need self-restraint to protect, to protect the innocent. But what's going on? So what's not saying? A person goes to a chasana, and there are, I would say probably there are three groups of bachar mechasnas. There are bachar mechasnas which are able to get into the mind of the chasana. And they are so happy for the chasana. And they dance, and they sing, and they clap, and they walk around with a smile, they're poshat mamish, totally in, into the, in, in with the chasana. The bachar, which, you know, maybe they're not as close, or they feel inhibited a little bit to dance too much because people will think that they're strange. You know, people will, um, they're going to dance around to the chasen. Are you really right into the chasen? Was it a good dance? Do you have a dance? You know, your juggling wasn't perfect, etc. They're focusing on their embarrassment. Then there's a third group of bachim and chasen, which dance in front of the chasen, and one makes one in the back of their mind they're thinking, well, how is, how is, how is such a great dancer? Wow, everybody's watching how, how such a good dancer is. is the ability to take yourself out of the picture. I was once, uh, way back when, we had a situation where well, a few of the Bokram had decided that they would be more Mesameh by if they drank. I'm, not, I'm sure you never heard of anybody who ever had such a thought process. So I asked the Bokram, why are you drinking? He says, I want to be Semech the Chassan. I said, what does that mean? You're telling me that you have a friend who's getting married, and the only way you can feel happy for him and be excited and want to dance with the Chassan is because you drank something. Like that's friendship, that you need a drink to allow you to get into the, the, the Simcha of the Chassan. You're... Your friend is ecstatic with Simcha. He's getting married. And you can only dance when you have two shots. I say, I think we need to address a problem over here. Why do I need two shots to be happy? 
Tara says, the shots take away my inhibitions. Because when I'm in that, that circle, I'm worried about, is everybody going to notice me? And wh whether I'm a good dancer or a bad dancer or, or the best dancer or the worst dancer or that I, my, my shirt looks the, the right way, etc. So alcohol helps me forget what people are thinking about. So the Gemara says that even by the Gemara says, even by a Levaya and by a Chasna, there's people which are busy thinking not about the Chasna and not about the Nifter, they're thinking about themselves. Are they bad people? They're not bad people. What's the, so the Matzniya the, means you can be Matzniya yourself, you're thinking about the picture. So the going says, I walk into a room and I want to be a listener. I want to hear what the other person has to say because I want to learn. Well, I need everybody to know how, smart, how, how much I know. I want them to know who I am. As Snuim Chachmaz, a person is able to be Matzniah himself and sort of like hide and take himself out of the picture, that person will gain so much more. He can be the Mesameach, the truly be Mesameach with the Chosen. He can truly be, be Maspid by the Leviah. I mean, I, I, I'm not a Novi, I'm not a Ben Novi, and I'm not a mind reader. But there are scenarios where I go to hear it, I've heard it's made by Leviathan, which I say, Mamish, the, the person is totally in tune with the pain of the Nifter, of the family, of the godless of the Nifter, and they're totally there for one reason, one reason only, just to give over a Hespin. And, and there's people which you can tell that while they're doing that, they're also concerned about how they're appearing. They're up in front of a group of, of 100, 200, 300, 500 people. And it's uncomfortable. Public speaking is not something which, which many people are comfortable with because they're worried about how people are perceiving them. means at that moment, why is it about me? There's somebody over here. This is a moment of, the last moment of, his, of, of here in this world. The Shama is slowly leaving the goof and it's going on. And we have to address it properly. We have to give it his appropriate praise. And that should be my focus. But we get distracted. Now, do we get distracted because we're bad people? We're not bad people. As a matter of fact, there's a fascinating idea that um, the root of this issue comes from low self-esteem. Because I'm not comfortable in my own skin, I'm worried about how you perceive me. But a person who's truly comfortable inside of them, in their own skin, they're not, they're not looking for you, looking at you to get from you recognition or, 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 or some type of positive feedback because I know what I am, I know what I'm not. Whether you think I'm good or bad is irrelevant. The main thing is I have to be the the, 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 the best person I can be. And I feel comfortable that that's what I am. Or, or if not, I need to work out to be my creator. Your opinion is irrelevant. So it comes out a fascinating thing that almost the best way to be about chesed where I can get into your mind and focus on you by the chasna, by the levaya, is the person who is comfortable with himself, and as a, he has he has self esteem, he has self confidence. He means he has a value. He ha, he know he knows his own value. 
which means he's self-focused. No, he's not self-focused. By knowing his own value, he can free up all the time which is spent focusing on how you perceive me and busy thinking about himself and how is he going to get the people around him to respect him, like him, etc. So he got past that. So now he can truly focus on what are your needs. So I had a situation by a couple and uh, so the husband has low self-esteem and uh, no husband is perfect and it's very devastating to a husband that when the wife when the wife cries because he takes it as it means that he's a failure so instead of focusing on what the woman's needs are that moment he's basically trying to convince himself that he's not a failure because it's very painful to be a failure so every time his wife cries he thinks that he's a failure he's instead of focusing on her needs he's basically explaining why it really that's not what he meant etc the wife was not such a bit All she hears is that her husband is giving excuses why it wasn't his fault. He doesn't mean that. It means he's so devastated by the idea that it might be his fault. He has to explain why he didn't really mean it. So the other option is so devastating it would destroy him. So he's busy protecting his very delicate and sensitive perception of self. And she's basically hearing that he's ignoring her needs. Because he's so self, in her mind, selfish. He's not selfish. He's so sensitive that for him, this is a matter of life and death. If I'm going to be a failure as a husband, I'm a failure as a person. Being a failure as a person is a very dangerous place to be. So therefore the solution is to explain why he didn't really mean it, and it's not what he said, and that's not what he meant, and that's not what he thought, and that she really doesn't understand but she doesn't get any of that. All she hears is excuses. So in yeshiva, this is a training ground. You're living with people, and you're living with people under the circumstances that we were on. You're basically on, on the uh, underground on the Antarctic. So this fellow is chewing. Who cares what he's doing? So we have a key to be aware of other people's people to be aware, to understand their position, their perception, their needs. But I can only do that if I'm comfortable with myself. So there's a fascinating possibility. You should love your fellow Jew like yourself. So all of the Bali Machshava, the Bali Musr, the Bali Chassidah say, you got to love yourself first before you can love somebody else. Because if you're busy not loving yourself, which is a horribly uncomfortable place to be, you're busy protecting your sensitive, sensitive soul. You're not busy noticing other people. You're not going to be aware of what, what, what's really going on inside of them. So it's almost counterintuitive. The person who... Now, there's people who, who walk around seeming like they have self-love because they talk about themselves all the time. Why in the world is this guy talking about himself all the time? Why? You know, I have this great idea, and, I, and, and, and I'm so good at sports, and I'm so, and my shot makes so much more sense. Why? Because he has low self-esteem. So he has to keep reminding himself and everybody around him how wonderful he is. Because otherwise he feels lowly. But a person who knows that he's not, that he's, that he's valuable, I don't need to keep being, being reminded. So there's this concept 
and the world is called the difference between the, the newly rich and the old land of aristocracy. The newly rich are busy flaunting their wealth to the whole world to prove to everybody, I'm rich. The, old, the people have been rich for generations. They don't need to. They know they're rich. They know they're rich. You know they're rich. They know that you know they're rich. And it's not important to us to talk about it. There's no reason to prove it. I don't have to prove anything to anybody. It's known already. It's a given. The new guy just, just won the lottery needs to show the whole world. <laughs> now I'm a rich guy. So that's true in every area. People get into a relationship. They don't want to prove to anybody I have this wonderful relationship with somebody. People have been in a relationship for years and it, it, it's an established fact. They don't need to prove it to anybody. The Russian created you. He said that you're valuable. The most, the, the only important being in the world and the most powerful being in the world the most omnipotent being in the world made you specifically the way you are because you are special. Okay, absorb that. Now what? That's a, now it's a fact. Now I can busy going through life and noticing there's other people around me who have needs and they're special and how they're special and see the world through their vantage point. So one of the, the most challenging things about, about um, being a yeshiva is this issue. And Loma says a fascinating thing. He says, why? He says, the Bershaw created a, a vehicle to help us get there. It's called the Jewish mother. Okay? Jewish mother's role is right, to keep saying how wonderful her yankel is. My uncle! <laughs> She's like, Right? So you live at home. Every night you come home, you, you sit in yeshiva, he says, the guy next to you is smarter than you. He's a bigger bucky than you. The guy across is a bigger diver than you. The guy in front is a bigger balchester than you. The guy behind you has a better memory than you. The guy across, like, it pusher wears away at you. Because everybody's better than you in some way. So you start noticing how small you are. So you go home at the end of the day, and the Jewish mother says, ah, my son is the God's gift to mankind. So you hear it a million times. So you start believing you're God's gift to mankind. Not in an in unhealthy way. In an unhealthy way, but the Bershom made you special. Yours are special, because you are special. And now you can, be, you can accept that as a fact and move on with life. But when you live in a dorm, Revolver writes, eventually you don't get that. So it starts wearing away at you. And then you're constantly being looking at yourself as inadequate, and it's, it's so uncomfortable being inadequate. You're busy trying to protect yourself from being inadequate or figure out how you're going to be adequate. And it becomes very, very self-focused. From that vantage point, when you're very, very self-focused, as opposed to trying to understand where other people are coming from, other people's things start getting on your nerves. But when you're willing to be I'm comfortable where I am, and I'm busy trying to make sure that everybody around me is comfortable and, and see and understand them where they're coming from. I can be a doctor. I can I can I can give the person other person. The calling is called Faginen. You have your way, my way. I can, I push, I'm totally comfortable. You should have it like that. So the voida is the voida of Faginen, to be able to forgive. We call that in English being Mavater, or whatever, not in English, um, in Yeshivish, supposedly Yiddish. 
But it's not Vitzer of that, you know what, Batsim really, I'm right. And Batsim really, you shouldn't be doing this. And Batsim, I'm a bit such a gorgeous, phenomenal Tzadim because I'm being Mavatar and whatever. But inside of me, I'm upset about it. That's a very bad place to be because you know what's going to happen? If I do it once, I never see the guy again in my life, fine. But I live with him all the time, it's going to eventually explode because it builds up inside of me. I was Mavatar this, and I was Mavatar that, and I did this, and I did that, and I da 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 da. And he never gives back. And you slowly but surely create resentment to somebody else because you're mavata. And you learn all the chazals about the importance of vita and you push it into your kishkas. And as he started in Musser, that Rasulullah says that when you take a spring and you press it down, you press it down, you press it down, eventually the spring pops off the other direction. So the person who takes a tiny deeper and he stops talking and doesn't talk and doesn't talk, the next day he talks double. Because you didn't fix anything. You just forced it down your throat. You didn't fix your emotions with that other person. You just forced it down your own throat. So, the this is not directly the concept of chesed, but all the chesed is rooted in this ability of a haft of the recha, kamoicha, which is a kalgadabal terror. The Russian made every member of Christ, so he made you he made you special. Accept that to the point that that's such a given and a fact that you don't have to keep proving that and being sensitive about it and being worried, worried about it and feeling inadequate. And now you can move your mind onto understanding the people around you. And it doesn't come because we're bad people. It comes because we grapple with this issue of inadequacy. And part of the, and, and, and yeshiva, that's a, that's a common theme. Because compared to everybody else around me, I am in some ways, I am inadequate. And the yeshiva, the whole concept of the yeshiva is that it expects growth and perfection. And I'm not growing and I'm not perfect, definitely not becoming perfect. So I feel inadequate. You know what? You're not that worse, so much worse than, than most other in yeshivas. You're not that much, so much better. You are. Okay, no. Uvda, as they say, right? Uvda, that's the way it is. Beautiful, wonderful. You're great. Now what? But what about Yanko? Yanko's also great. And what are his needs? And what are his feelings? Where is he coming from? Why does he do that? Maybe I can help him realize, focusing on his needs, that people around him don't understand why he's doing that, and they're going to find it a little bit. That's a little. It puts them off. And maybe I can be. I can help him. Because he doesn't really have understand social cues so much. And I can help him. I can be Balchesed, but I'm coming totally from the feeling of ava and, and, and concern about the other person. So this is not an overnight avoider, but it is an important avoider. And I think it gives a little insight to understand why it's so challenging and how we can possibly address the issue. So I hope that, meanwhile, meanwhile, all of you should be well. I hope to be in person next week. Uh, I was, uh, my, my,